It's good to see some folks who maybe have been down and are back up, and we're thankful for that. And uh, those of you who are here every week, thank you for being part of a midweek Bible study. Um, so let's see. Last call for food before we get going. If you need to do that, go ahead and make your way over. There's coffee in the back. Um, can we just give a round of applause to the ladies who came out this evening and set all this up for us? Beautiful job. Yes, they do. Wonderful job. Amen. I was paid a very high compliment tonight from Brandon, our sound technician. Um, I, you know, many people have said to me, and it's a little hurtful in this society today, they would say that I'm, I'm loud. And Brandon said that I project well. So. <laughs> so anyway, good to have you. Let's get started. Let's start with prayer. Lord, tonight as we open the word of God, and what a privilege it is to do that, that we live in a country still where we can open our Bibles freely. And uh, while brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe, there are certain places where that is not the po that's not even a possibility. And many have lost their lives because of the word of God. Many have suffered great persecution because of the truth of the word that they would not stop speaking. They were simply doing exactly what Paul and Silas and Peter and James and John, what the disciples did. They, they, they spoke the word boldly not arrogantly, not obnoxiously. They simply were faithful to it. And because of that, they suffered and the disciples died. And Lord, uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have experienced the same. So Lord, uh, tonight as we open the Bible, we, we don't take it for granted that we have the freedom in America to do that. But God, the way to pay you back and give thanks to you, the way to honor our freedom of speech is by continuing to speak to our lost loved ones, our lost friends, and people that we just connect with, that we meet in this world. Lord, may we be like the disciples. May we not stop speaking the word of the Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we give you all the praise that tonight we're here for one reason, not just to gain knowledge, we are here to be reminded and to learn and grow more so that we might share more with people. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we find ourselves tonight in chapter 5, and I think because chapter 5 is a short chapter, we'll make our way into chapter 6. We might even complete two chapters tonight. Let's get started. Chapter 5, verse 1, 1 Kings. 1 Kings 5.1. I use the uh, English Standard Version Bible. Uh, there are other good versions, and there's some that are not so good. Always, um, don't ever use a paraphrase for Bible study. You might read it at night before bed because it does read well, but if you're studying the Word of God, always use a direct translation, and preferably a word-for-word -word translation, rather than a sentence for sentence or a paragraph for paragraph. So uh, good word translation Bibles. Uh, the King James, believe it or not, is a good Bible. New King James is a good Bible. Uh, New American Standard Bible is excellent. 
uh, English Standard Version is a very good one. And then you step down to the sentence for sentence, the NIV and other Bibles like that. And at the bottom of the list, you have your Living Bible. Some of you I know love the Living Bible. Probably you, you've been reading it for years, and that's perfectly fine if you're just reading. But uh, you don't want to study by it because the author has taken great liberties even beyond what the Bible teaches. So we always want to have the right version. It does matter, okay? We're not a church that thinks that the King James is the only true version. Uh, it is a very good version, okay? All right, let's get started. Now, Hiram, uh, that's a great uh, name. And, and Jews would have spelled it today. They would spell it H-I-R-O-M, Hiram. I have a neighbor named Hiram, and uh, he's a good friend. Now, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the, well, uh, the, I'm sorry, the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary, or, I'm sorry, adversary or, nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. So right there we, we are reminded that uh, when Adonijah tried to take the throne after David, actually while David was still on the throne, Adonijah rose up like Absalom, and uh, when they brought that word to David, because David was so old and so decrepit at that point, he uh, didn't even keep up with what was happening in the current life of Israel, didn't know his son was about to try and take his throne from him. So uh, that's when he appointed and called for Solomon, and they anointed Solomon the next king. All of that was part of God's plan, and David has, had even told Solomon that he would be the next king. So here we see another confirmation of that here in our text. Now, let's back up and look at verses 1 through 5 again. Uh, David was a mighty warrior. We all know that. He, he had great success against the enemy uh, of Israel. It started on the battlefield with Goliath as just a young boy when he showed up and his brothers were there with Israel sitting on the side of the hill and the Philistines on the other hill across the valley. And they're all eating breakfast, and he brought some cheese for them his father had sent. And uh, he asked them, he said, what in the world is going on? Why, why are they there? You're here. You're not fighting. They're just kind of hanging out. And, of course, they knew that Goliath was on the side for Philistines. They were fearful. Even King Saul, who was there with them, had not gone out to face the giant. And David said these words, is there not a cause this guy has made fun of our God. He has said that he's going to feed whoever comes up against him to the dogs. Are you kidding me? And little David, the boy, who has this mighty lion heart, says, I'll face him. I'll face him. Of course, the, Saul had thrown it out to all of his men. Whoever faces the giant gets my daughter, her hand in marriage. And David was like, Okay, that's fine too, but I really want to take this guy out for what he said about our God. And David goes out and defeats the giant. And that was the beginning of David's 
uh, his name, what people knew of him, his reputation. And even as a king, he was not afraid to go to battle. He traveled away from hiding from Saul for many years. And he and his mighty men of valor, you've heard that phrase, the mighty men of valor. They were great men. All of them were a bunch of skunks. When they started out, they were thieves. They were men who were in trouble all the time. And they couldn't get anything right. And they met up with David. And David got them all fixed up and said, you're going to be men of God. You're going to be mighty men of valor. And these men were very tough. And they were able to defeat larger, uh, you know, so, uh, armies, platoons than, than themselves. So David is the guy. He's, he's the one. And, and here Solomon is saying to King Hiram, you know that about my dad. But because he was a man who had blood all over his hands, God said, you're not going to build my temple for me. I'm not going to let you build my house. So archaeologists, interestingly enough, you might want to write this down in your site as a side note. Do your own homework. You'll find it. Uh, they discovered a royal sarcophagus in, Babel, in Biblos, B-Y-B-L-O-S, B-Y-B-L-O-S, and that's in Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And it's dated, get this, 1200 B.C., in 1200 B.C., and it's inscribed with King Hiram. They put an A in front of Hiram, okay? So apparently it belonged to the man that... Solomon is speaking with even right now. According to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he's not a believer, he was never a believer, never converted to, to Christianity, but he was a great, well-known historian of uh, Jewish antiquity, and uh, he actually said, let me find my notes on him, uh, he found a copy of this letter that, that Solomon had with King Hiram. He has a copy of a letter. Uh, and so that's quite interesting as well. So these events that took place in the Bible way before uh, A.D. ever was a thought, these guys really lived on the earth. These stories are not fictitious. These are real stories. And, and we're studying the Word of God tonight that is living and, and now archaeology, science, the sciences, are playing catch-up. Isn't that always the case with science? It always plays catch-up. It's never out front. So when the sciences come out with whatever they want to say about this particular pen, you know, this, this issue over here, COVID, and this over here, and we got to be careful, they're always, they're, at that point, they're, they're taking guesses, educated guesses. And sometimes an education is not worth a whole lot if you don't apply common sense. And, and, and yet, as time goes, the things that the Bible teaches, the wisdom that is in the truth of the Word of God, it shows to be true. And so that, I just think that's, that's pretty awesome. So anyway, getting, getting back to our text, David must have told Hiram spiritual things when they were friends. Not everybody that David came up against was an enemy. Obviously, the king of Tyre was not. And he must have uh, shared things with him because if you look at verse 3, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God. You know that, uh, Hiram, because my father intimated that to you. He, he shared that with you as a friend about Israel, about God. And because of that, King Hiram, we don't know if he ever became truly God-fearing 
where he surrendered and where he became a convert to Judaism. We don't know that to be true. In fact, it's probably not true. But we do know that because of David and David's influence of sharing about his God with Hiram, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Hiram held David's God in high esteem, at least in high esteem, maybe even more. Maybe he was God-fearing. Now, this chapter deals with Solomon's work in obtaining the materials to build the temple. Remember, how many of you have ever seen a movie that talks about Solomon's temple? Okay, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark would have been that movie. 99.9% uh, .9 of it wasn't true, it was inaccurate, but it sure was a fun movie, wasn't it? <laughs> and it, so if you're listening to it just as a fictitious story, it's okay. Okay, and that, that's really, but th now you're getting the real story right here, okay? This is the real stuff. But keep in mind, David has already gathered many of the supplies for this temple that Solomon's going to build. It wasn't, oh, so Solomon is setting out here, what we're going to see in chapters 5 and 6 and even beyond, this, this thing is about the building of the temple. Solomon's going into full build mode. But long before he became king and went into build mode, his father had already begun to put the plans together resources for the temple and knowing that he would never see the temple with his own eyes now you want to talk about kingdom building in our day that is how we those of us who belong to the kingdom of God that's how we should live our lives that's how we should die investing in the kingdom of God here on this earth, even though we'll never see it. What a wonderful thought. Because when you get to heaven, uh, who knows, God probably gives you a glimpse. Look at what we were able to do, and you participated in that. Certainly, you're going to see people who are saved because of the way you invested in the work of God and His church. There could be somebody on a, on a field, a, a mission field in a remote part of the world, that somewhere along the way, somebody got saved because you were faithful to share money that gave the missionary the opportunity to go to that foreign land, and then that person gets saved, grows up, they go off on the mission field, they're in a mission field that you've never heard of, and they are winning people to Christ, you get to heaven and somebody walks up and says, thank you for your giving. Who are you? Where are you from? I never gave... Yes, you did. You invested in the kingdom. That's kingdom living right there. That's kingdom thinking. You know, we talk about having a biblical worldview in this life, that when we look at all these events and current events and things happening, we should always approach everything with a filtering, and the filter should be the word of God, right? But we should also, in this life, have a kingdom mentality. Okay, we're not just biblical, we don't just have a biblical worldview, we have a kingdom of God worldview. That I, the kingdom of God is going to live here on this earth after I'm gone. Therefore, why would I ever want to stop giving? I won't. Um, somebody was, I forget where I read this, I, I love to read it, it was an article, might have been out of Reformed Theological Seminary, they sent out a, a good little piece, could have been Steve Lawson, uh, he's got a, a magazine on preaching that I like. Anyway. Uh, a, a gentleman who is very old, I'm not going to give you the age because some of you will say, that's not old. 
he was older. And, uh, and his wife, every year for years, would raise flowers. And in October, late October, she would go into her little uh, sunroom, and there she would lay out the, the pots, and she would begin to put the bulbs down into the, into the soil. And then she would plant those. Um, in, and, and then in the spring, a flower would come up out of that bulb, you know. And he said, and then she got very sick. And she knew that she would not get to see the beauty of that flower when it bloomed. But she was still out there in October sickly putting bulbs in the soil. She didn't stop. I love that. That's living a full life. Because you have a full perspective from God's view. And all of us should have that. Amen? All right. Let's go home. That's enough. If we just practice this alone, what we're learning here from David to Solomon, we've learned a lot tonight. It's a lot to live up to, and it's a lot to try to remember. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5. If you can turn, that's fine, but I'll just read it for you. First uh, Chronicles 22, 5 <clears throat> says, For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. It must be of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Never got to see it. That wasn't the Especially when we give. If I get the benefit from what I give to, that's great. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, that would be called a good investment in this society. But when you can give with generosity of your heart because it's the kingdom work and you might never see it, that's even better. Amen. All right. The cedar trees of Lebanon were legendary. He talked about uh, this. And I want to go into it in just a moment here. Uh, they're going to be gathering the different so Solomon is coming to Hiram and he's coming with a specific purpose uh, you'll, you have not because you ask not and Solomon let me say it this way in this world this is a popular way of saying it Solomon had a lot of change in his pocket when he became king. Um, the reason that the, everybody, if you have a new job and you're, you have people under you, doesn't matter what kind of work, when you first start, you have change in your pocket, in most cases. In other words, the people who are going to work under you are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt that you know what you're doing. And so when you come in and you start something new, they're going to probably say, okay, let's, let's give it a try. It might work. And where before, if it had been the guy that had been there for five, 25 years, eh, no, I'm not going to get behind that. So, they, so Solomon had a lot of change. Part of the reason he has change is because his father had set up these relationships. He had conquered these different enemies, and then he built relationships like with King uh, Hiram. And so when Solomon comes in, he didn't have to try to, you know, uh, somehow sugarcoat and make it look good and, and, and watch how he speak and be diplomatic and tactful to get 
the, the other king to help him. He rode in on the coattails of his dad, and and the and the new or the king in, in Tyre said, "Hey, I knew your dad. I'm glad you're king. And what do you need?" So that's the relationship that we see here. It's very important. So let's talk about the cedar trees of Lebanon because they are legendary for being excellent timber, and that's what Solomon is going to ask of this king. Uh, this king is in Tyre, Sidon, and Tyre. Uh, would be along the coast. If we could pass those maps out, let's pass those out at this time. Uh, I've got some maps going out. And let me have one too, John. I think I gave mine away as well. I want to give you a perspective. If we had an overhead or if we had... Thank you so much. If, hey, they do have a screen. So in the future, oh, look at this. So we guys just got to figure out how to, how to access it. Um, what you're going to look at is the kingdom of Israel under Solomon and David. And you can see the expansiveness of this kingdom. It's really quite amazing. It goes all the way up into Syria. Israel once had that land in Syria. And uh, it goes all the way down to the edge of Egypt, really. So quite interesting. But if you look in the middle of the map on the coast, the Mediterranean coast there, you see, can you imagine how pretty the water was there on that Mediterranean coast, you know, that beautiful aqua blue? Okay, you see Sidon and Tyre. This region is known for its, its cypress and its cedar, but most importantly, the cedar tree. And, and this is, so now if you look down below, you can see where where uh, Jerusalem is, you have to go way down on the map. Jerusalem's at the, at the top of really just uh, west of the, of the Dead Sea. And you see Jerusalem. And so he is going all the way up, okay? This would be like, um, I want to say it's between five and seven day journey to walk up to that area. And he's going to request that this king provide the cedars necessary for the house of God. And the Cyprus as well. And the Sidonians were master craftsmen when it came to tree cutting. Uh, the the uh, treatment of the trees after they're cut. And knowing how to fell a tree, these guys were the best. And so you can see Solomon's not wasting. He's going after the very best for the house of God. And so here we see one scholar said the Sidonians were no, uh, noted as timber craftsmen in the ancient world, a fact substantiated on the famous Palmero stone. Its inscription from 22 BC, 2200 BC tells us about timber carrying ships that sailed from Byblos to Egypt about 400 years previously. The skill of the Sidonians was expressed in their ability to pick the most suitable trees, know the right time to cut them, fell them with care, and then properly treat the logs. So I find this interesting that Solomon is willing to build the temple with the best. That's what he wants to do, is give his best for God's house. Uh, this was a temple to the God of Israel, but the temple isn't, isn't built without the aid of a Gentile. And I think that's something worth noting. Um, sometimes, uh, look, t 
today in, in our world that we live in, God wants us to mingle. He wants us to interact with. He wants us to get in touch with people who don't believe in God. We should not be a church that's locked up in some little room with a pretty glass window. That's not the picture that God has for his church. We should be out there every day loving people that aren't anything like us, who might even worship pagan, pagan gods. Some don't worship any god. Others worship pagan gods. And we become their friends. And it's amazing how, if you look through the, throughout Scripture, how many times God used other peoples on the earth who were not God-fearing to, to bless Israel with what she needed. And I think this is a case for that. This is where we see uh, a Gentile king being called upon, and this king is saying, yeah, I want to do whatever I can. Even though I'm not a Jew, I'm not in covenant, the old covenant, I'm not in that covenant, but I respect your father greatly. And that's the kind of image that we should have with people today. Now, let me just say this. When you come across people who are pushing something that is totally anti-Bible, causing harm to other people, we must lovingly speak the truth. We must speak the truth. And, 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 and in this society, if you don't agree, then you're against me and I'm going to write you off. But that's okay. But you'll be surprised how many people who are either away from God because they've, they've backslidden or who have never known God, but they know you and they respect you. And in their time of need, guess who they're going to call? They're going to come for you. I had a woman who I used to visit at a restaurant in Palm Beach Gardens on a little side street. Uh, it was called CJ's Cafe. And I would have breakfast there. And her name was Joan. And she was my waitress. And we developed quite a relationship. She was older. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I didn't know anything about her, 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 her family. She never really opened up at all. But we would talk about any subject and just have good fellowship together. And... Uh, and then I got a phone call, and she said, uh, Pastor Greg, um, I, I, I don't even know how to ask. I've never been around the church, but my son just committed suicide. And he was a 24-year-old boy who is well-known in the surfing community in South Florida. And she said uh, he, he took his life. And uh, I'm just asking, is it possible that you could help me? And there was no hesitation. Of course I can. And we, <clears throat> I met with her. I shared the gospel with her. She did not get saved, but she listened out of respect because of our friendship. And I told her, if I do the service, I must preach the gospel. And she said, that's fine. And I preached over 200 young people. His age showed up. <clears throat> and many got saved that day. So God gave me the opportunity to have an impact in the lives of some folks who don't know the Lord just because I became a friend with someone from the world. That's, we should never build our lives in such a way that we are inculcated, insulated by Christians. This is special. We gather midweek with the body of Christ 
to be rebuilt, to be refueled, to be encouraged, to be supportive. But then we go right back out there and we build relationships with them because they need Christ. And, and this is the result. So he's going to call upon this great king for some of the, well, it is the best wood in the world. Uh, one, another thing about the, the cedars of Lebanon, you've heard of that. Back in the day, the cedars of Lebanon, they had groves of cedar. They had forests of cedar trees. And, but the deforest, deforestation today has completely wiped that out. They now have a few groves left, and that's it. Um, also, uh, I forget who it was that came in and destroyed uh, their groves. One of the tribes came in later and, and just destroyed. But anyway, uh, to this day, on the flag, the, the uh, Lebanon flag, uh, Lebanese flag, you'll see a cedar tree. It's a symbol. Cedar is a symbol. It is the highest of all the woods in the Bible. If you speak of the cedars of Lebanon, you are talking about the highest quality wood, the highest quality timber, the highest quality tree. And it's known because not only of its, uh, its fragrance, but also because uh, bugs can't penetrate it. And so uh, that's what we're talking about here. And we're talking about going after this for the house of God. Verse 7, as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over the, this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the, to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. Literally, it was food for his, all of his workers uh, to provide for them. Uh, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between uh, Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. It took seven years to build the temple, and so for quite a while they were bringing wood. Think about this now. You've got a map. You can see where Sidon and Tyre are. They would take these wood trees. They would fell them. They would clean them. They would treat them. By the way, uh, they started, uh, they, it took seven years. They started the project in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. But that doesn't mean that it was the fourth year when he went to the king. Uh, even though this kind of fools us, but he probably... Even through David, they had already talked to the king. They were already in the process of getting ready for this because it would take a great deal of time to do this work. They would take them, haul them to the coast. They would roll them to the coast uh, on, on logs, put them in the Mediterranean Sea. We're not talking about a river to, to bring them downstream. We're talking about the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know how they do it, but they make rafts. And they put these, these huge timbers and they would, they would bring them down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They stopped off of the coast of Jerusalem, which is about 20, uh, 30 miles inland. And then they would bring those cedars into Jerusalem. They would then bring them to the top of the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah. That's where the Temple Mount is. 
and that's where they would begin construction with these, these large pieces of cedar. Pretty, pretty impressive back in that day, huh? Pretty impressive. Now, if you talk to a contractor, he'll say, I have a hard time even getting supplies just to build one house. Back then, uh, the, the supply was, was great. It just took time to get the supplies, but they, they were going to be there. So, so Cyr, uh, Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber and cedars and cypress that he desired. And the Lord, verse 12, gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So, Hiram was a man who at least held the God of Israel in high regard. And Solomon offered Hiram whatever he needed to do this project. So they are truly working together. Uh, when he says, gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat, 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Uh, this was actually food for his men who cut and hauled the trees out of the forest. We already talked about that. Verse 13, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. And they would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adinaram was in charge of the draft. So this is like a conscription. And you would serve, you would go. You think about it, Solomon's pretty wise. You're going to be away from your family for a month, working up in Sidon or Tyre. But then you're going to have two months off. So very fair. And this huge labor force shows that the temple uh, could only be built with a lot of people involved. And that's true for building anything for the kingdom of God. Even if it's not a physical building, anything we do for the kingdom of God requires a lot of people. That's how God, when we give to missionaries, God would, God would have all of us who are saved be part of that project. Amen? And the same would be true for when we do build a building or when we purchase a land that has a building, we're going to all need to be part of that. That's not just a few. That's not people who have a lot of money. That's everybody gets involved. Everybody at their own level, but being, being moved by the Spirit of God, we all do our part. Um, these 30,000 men who labored in Lebanon were Israelites. They were not Sidonians. Uh, they were Israelites. They, they were sent to Lebanon uh, 10,000 uh, on a month's rotation. And uh, they la th these were labors that uh, need to be distinguished as different from the Canaanite slaves that Israel had. Okay? Uh, Solomon's wisdom was evident in the way he employed this great workforce. He, uh, he wisely delegated responsibility to men like Adinaram. Secondly, instead of making the Israelites work constantly, he gives them this, these shifts. That's way ahead of his time. Wise man. Verse 15, Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. And at the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of uh, Gabal did the cutting and the prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Now let's talk for a second about the labor force 
of free men. 70,000 carried burdens, 80,000 who quarried stones. This seems to describe the number of Canaanite slave laborers that Solomon used. These 150 laborers and their supervisors were non-Israelite inhabitants. They lived in the land of the Jews, of the Israelites, but they, they were not totally free. Second Chronicles 2.17, Then Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census of them that David his father had taken, and there were found 153,600. 70,000 of them he assigned to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry of the hill country, and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work. Um, it was not a slavery as we think of slavery today. Um, they were aliens in the sense that you're not an Israelite. You're, if you're a man, you're not circumcised. So you're not part of the tribe, uh, one of the tribes of Israel. But you are living in our land, but we need you to do this. And uh, one scholar notes, during the seven years it took to build the temple, not a single workman died who was employed. So we're not talking about beating slaves. We're not talking about misusing slaves. Solomon was very prudent, very wise, and he was very kind. Uh, interesting. This is very interesting. Uh, this scholar said that, that uh, no one died while they were employed. Not even did a single one fall sick. So it sounds like God is involved in this for the building of his house. And as the workmen were sound and robust from the first to the last, so the perfection of the tools remained unimpaired. Wouldn't that be nice, Julian? Go seven years and never have to replace a tool as a contractor. Wouldn't that, isn't that, isn't that something, Ron? Yeah, that's good. This is what the Lord did as they were building the, his house. Michael, isn't that pretty cool? Think about your, 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 think about your, your, uh, your favorite tool, you know? And they get older, and they wear down, and you got to replace, and whatever. You've got to sharpen, resharpen over and over. Not these tools. So the work did not suffer, neither was there interruption. Ginsburg, one of the scholars, said that. The stones that they took from the quarry were high quality, according to Solomon's request. Even the found, listen, think about this. Even the foundation that nobody would ever see was taken with high quality stone. Pretty amazing. Um, shouldn't that be true of us? Not just the parts of our ministry that people see, but anything that we do for the Lord, even the things that we do in secret, we do to the highest quality. We give our all for God, no matter what we're doing. We give God all the glory. Isn't that wonderful? My mom is here, and she won't like me doing this, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> respectfully, I'm sorry, Mom. Um, they lived in Carolina for, what, 25 years? 21 years. And after they retired, they, we were raised in Daytona. Then they, they went to North Carolina. And Grandfather Mountain is well-known. Well, Grandmother Mountain is right behind it, and it's beautiful as well. And the homes on Grandfather and Grandmother Mountain mountains are extravagant. How many windows in the one house that you did? 37, 37 windows in a house. And uh, she would go and clean the houses, 
of these very wealthy people. And they loved her. And they would even allow us to go up and visit and stay in the house because they only were in it for a few months out of the year. And, uh, and my mom, when she works, even to this day, even in her own home, and if you want something clean, that lady right there. Uh, so she, when she's working, when she's doing windows, when she's mopping, whatever, she's whistling while she works. Just what she does. She just whistles the whole time. I've never seen my mom not give her best for God. And that's why she does it. She, God's given her the ability, and she does it. And, so, and that's just her. Some of you are very hard workers as well. You're the same. You give your all. Whether people see it or not, you give your all. Amen? That's the way it should be. That's what God wants of us. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon once said, I want to urge that all our work for God should be done thoroughly, and especially that part of it which lies lowest, or at least observed of men, is least observed of men. So after all, this, this speaks to the way God works in us. He works in the deeper crevices of our lives, the parts of us that nobody ever see. But God is wanting to change those places too. He never quits on you, never quits on me. He's always at work. Should we not give our best even when nobody's looking? This is also true of how God builds his temple, and it's true for how God is building his church in our day. He wants our best. We don't own any buildings but we should be at our best when we worship him every Sunday in a cafeteria. We should be our best on Monday when we go to work or when we go to the golf course or when we go to the doctor's office or wherever we go, we should be our best, giving our best to the Lord. Spurgeon said, to maintain solid truth, you need solid people. I like that. Vital godliness is therefore to be aimed at. 20,000 people all merely professing faith but having no energetic life may not have grace enough among them to make 20 solid believers. That's probably true today too, isn't it? <laughs> Poor, sickly believers turn the church into a hospital rather than a camp. I like that. Um, a church is a hospital too. You know, there's people that get sick. We want to be a hospital, spiritually speaking, caring for them. But man, we are a training center. We've got a work to do. It's like we're on the edge of the, the mission field and we come in here, we get built up, strengthened up, supported, and then we go right back out there into the no man's land. Amen? It's what life is supposed to be. So this is chapter 5. Let's go to chapter 6. How are we doing on time? We're okay. In the 408th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, that would be the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So this is saying that it was in the fourth year, but that's when the edifice was beginning to come together, I believe. I think the planning for it, obviously David was even doing our, uh, planning for it, and probably Solomon too for the first four years that he was king. Uh, the, the, the reign of, this is interesting for some of you who like to write these kind of things down. The reign of Solomon likely began in 971 B.C. It ended at 913 B.C., 
Okay, now the temple, they started building the temple in 967 BC, four years later. This means that the Exodus took place in 1447 BC. Okay, they've been out for 400 years. So this is quite interesting. Uh, so from this chapter, we get a marking place that we can actually see other events and when they took place. First Chronicles 28.11 says, Then David gave Solomon, his son, the plan of the vestibule. So see, the, the laying of the plans for the, for the new temple started long before Solomon, after four years of being king, started building the building. Uh, and, and its houses, its treasures, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts. So even though David couldn't build it, David's like, I am all in on getting this thing ready, you know, and, and doing what I can to help my son before I pass to be successful on this venture. Uh, here's the thing that is, is, really has all of us probably wondering to this day, and that is, where was that temple built? Um, I don't mean general location. We know it was on the Temple Mount. We know it was on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, the same mountain that Abraham took Isaac because the Lord told him, to sacrifice his son. Listen now, that is a picture of Jesus Christ, a type of a sacrifice that Christ would suffer and die. The Father in heaven would give his son. Abraham takes his special boy. He had Isaac when he was an old man, right? Remember that? He and uh, his wife Sarai, they, they were old and they had a son. So no doubt, this boy was spoiled rotten. Because of their age, they would have treated him like a grandchild. In their case, a great-great-great-grandchild. <laughs> um, and, and yet, take him and sacrifice him. They go to the top. On the way up, Isaac asks his father, Father, I see the wood. You know, I see the how we're carrying it all up there, but, but where is the sacrifice? He didn't know he was a sacrifice. Where is the sacrifice? And the words of Abraham were, God himself will provide the sacrifice. A picture on the same mount, a different hill of that mountain, that Jesus Christ would be the sacrifice. God himself would provide the ultimate sacrifice for us. Isn't that amazing? So this is a very special place. Uh, it's, it's, but we don't know where the foundation of the temple was laid. There's a lot of conjecture, you know. We know that there now you have the temple of, or the, uh, the Dome of the Rock that's up there. Um, and Israel has their own worship. Right now, I understand there's a lot of activity at the Temple Mount, a lot of uh, uh, unrest, and now you're not able to go up to the Temple Mount. Uh, the Muslims, there's, there's real issues. Palestinians and Jews are really going at it. Um, but we don't know exactly where up there to this day. 
So here's what we do know. Uh, the house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the, name of the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits. That means the, the chain, these chambers on the outside went up three high, so three floors high. Uh, and, and he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the, ho of the house. Uh, so this chapter really describes the building of the temple and the associated areas that they constructed. And there are four structures, write these down, there's four, basically four structures that they're dealing with here in chapter six. The, number one is the temple proper, the actual temple, and that would be the house that Solomon is building for God. And it's divided into two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. So that's the first, I wish I had made a, given you a map tonight of that or a layout of, of the temple, I'm sorry. Uh, but the holy place and the most holy place. Then the second, the second structure would be the vestibule or entrance hall on the east side of the temple proper. Uh, the vestibule in front of the sanctuary. It was 30 feet uh, wide and 15 feet deep and the same height as the temple proper. Okay? Uh, the, the three storied, the third, the third uh, structure would be the three storied side chambers which surrounded the temple proper on the north, south, and the west side, not on the east, but on the west. And then the fourth structure was a large courtyard surrounding the whole structure and the inner court mentioned in 1 Kings 6.36. You can read about it if you want, but its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. This is the temple. Assuming that the ancient cubit was approximately 18 inches, this means that the temple proper was approximately 90 feet long. This is not a big building com in comparatively, okay? 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high, okay? Uh, the dimensions, uh, look, the, the size and the magnitude is not where the glory comes from of this building. It is who dwells. In this place, it was God and His glory that made this a special place. Uh, the dimensions of the temple also tell us that it was built on the same basic design as the tabernacle that they used for 400 years. Wow. Think of building a tabernacle, uh, basically a big tent, with the same, with the same exact uh, dimensions and it lasting 400 years. Now, we get into a little bit of the construction details. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither the hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. If you were to show up at the construction site, no noise whatsoever. This too was partly 
to symbolize this is a sacred place that we're building. No noise. No chisels. No hammers. Okay? The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and all of that. Uh, we, we can see this. And from the middle story to the third so he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks and of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high. It was joined to the house with timber, timbers of cedar. Okay, this structure that they're building, all the stone that they're building from the foundation to the top, listen, they never used mortar. They never used a tool to chisel a little bit to make it fit. They say that that temple, when it was completed, you couldn't slide this piece of paper into the seam of two large quarried stones. When they cut it in the quarry and they fitted it in the quarry, they would bring them up and they would just lay one on the other and they fit perfectly. Perfectly. This was the level of of craftsmanship that was used for the assembly of the house of the Lord. We can't even get lumber that's straight today. I went to Lowe's to buy some lumber for my son. We were doing a little project in his house, and I went through like 13 boards to find one that didn't have a crown or a bow on it. And uh, so it's, it, th this is master craftsman work for the house of the Lord. And uh, so, very interesting. I, I, one scholar said they didn't even use nails on any part of the building. They literally would lay these large timbers on the rock. They'd cut into the rock down in the quarry. It would fit in everything without nail on site. Now, when they started doing the inlays of gold and other things, then they would use their, their tools uh, to put the paneling up of different kinds of woods the uh, cedar, uh, the cypress, they use cypress inside. But, uh, but think about that, just a, a magnificent structure. Uh, this also speaks uh, to God's work in the church. No nails were used for the timber. It was all properly fit. Who does the fitting of you? Who does the creating of a new person in you because you are in Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is a master. He knows what he's doing. He knows you inside and out. He knows the number of hairs on your head tonight. Tonight. He knows your personality. He knows your fingerprint. And here's going to blow you away. And God knew this before he ever started building and creating this world you live in. From the foundation of the world, he knows you. Wow. Pretty good stuff, isn't it? Perfectly fit together. The scripture says, in my mother's womb. Um, So Solomon paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. 
these were some of the finest building materials available. The impression of this magnificent building was, uh, if you could just see it, I, I, I wish we could see it. He also built side chambers against the t entire temple. These side chambers were built in three stories. Verse 11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. So here we have a conditional statement from God, a promise to Solomon as long as he and the people obeyed him. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. This was a promise from God, but it's a conditional promise because we know looking forward, we've read the whole Bible, right? So we know that they became unfaithful to God and we know that the temple was destroyed. God allowed that to happen because of their unfaithfulness. But what a beginning. If you go over to 2 Chronicles, you actually see Solomon dedicating that temple to the Lord. We all know well in chapter 7 where he actually said, if my people, which are God responded to Solomon who prayed, asking God to bless. He was actually interceding in behalf of the people. He started that prayer, I think in chapter 4 or chapter 3, and he started by saying, Lord, if the people were to fall into pestilence, if they were to fall to the sword or whatever, would you not come and, and spare them and save them? And he goes off and just really intercedes in behalf of the people. And finally, in chapter 7, verse 14, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Again, a conditional statement. And at the, at the beginning of that temple, when it was dedicated to the Lord, the scripture actually says in 2 Chronicles that the priest could not even stand to minister before the Lord because all of a sudden God shows up. The glory of God is present and the place starts to shake. Smoke starts to fill. And all of a sudden God shows that he is pleased with this building that they built for him. And the conditional statement, that promise was for them. He meant it. So let's finish this up quickly. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house of, on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built with, uh, this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. By the way, that inner place, that Holy of Holies, was a picture of heaven. Everything in that thing was inlaid with gold. When you walked into that room, which you never did, but if you could, it was all gold. Okay? Um, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. So uh, you're talking about just a square cube. 
He overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished and all the work, a whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Those are tall. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. And it was 10 cubits from the tip of the one wing to the tip of the other. And the other Cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. And the height of one cherub was ten cubits, and he was and was and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other touched the other wall. Their other wings touched the each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold around all the walls on the house. He carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner uh, sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorpost were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made the entrance to the uh, nave doorpost of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he, he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied to the carved wood. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, and in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, uh, this, uh, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. So quickly, if I just say this to you, that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, was a cube that was 30 feet, a cube, okay? Uh, completely laid in gold. Uh, by the way, God, you know that God didn't live in the house. He did not live in the temple. He came down upon the temple. His presence would be there at certain times when the priest would go back in once a year on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go back into the Holy of Holies. God's presence would be there to meet with him. But no house could contain the Lord. The heavens, the Bible says, cannot contain the Lord. Man, isn't that wonderful? What wonderful thoughts to take home tonight. Uh, what a great thing. And yet, that God, who is so great, chose to execute a plan whereby His Son, His only begotten, would go to the cross take on your sin and my sin and literally take on God's wrath and anger against sin and do it for us and not just save us from our sins but impute to us His righteousness that we would be called the children 
of God because we bear His righteousness. We don't need a building. In fact, there's not a building that we could build that would ever be better than what we already have. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. Tonight, uh, really, uh, two chapters of just looking at details of construction, and it could be very monotonous and very boring, but Lord, when we look at the bigger picture and we see what's happening here, and then we see how all of this fits your story, which is really history, which is really his story. From front cover to back of the Bible, it is about Jesus. And tonight we are thankful that that Christ who died for us now by the Spirit lives in us. That you, Father, no longer need to to keep us away from you because of your holiness, but now you let us have access into the throne room to receive grace, to receive mercy, to receive Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God.